Uh, you can turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as Michael said in his prayer, that's where we'll be. Um, looking at this chapter of Scripture, 627 words. That's how many uh, words are there in your at least English standard version of the Bible. Uh, 627 words where Jesus pours out his heart before the Father uh, for our sanctification, for his glory, for our unity as the, the people of God. 627 words where, uh, in just a moment, our brother uh, Jay Leonard will read for us. takes around three and a half minutes, not a very long uh, passage of Scripture, but it'll take us an eternity to grasp the weight of these words. Uh, if you're just coming back to Poplar Spring or haven't been with us in a while, this is our second week in this study. And I uh, explained last week this is a little bit different. Uh, we're not going verse by verse as, as is normally our habit when we walk through books of the Bible. We usually take a chapter and go verse by verse. This, this study we're doing a little differently. We're looking at this chapter, chapter 17, all 26 verses, four Sundays in a row. And we're sort of taking a, a thematic approach instead of a chronological approach where we'll peel back different layers of this rich, rich chapter week after week and sort of uh, see more and more themes as we dig into it. And so this is our second week. So um, just to remind you, last week we looked at what the Father has given the Son in the text that we see the Father has given the Son. This week we'll observe what the Son has given to his followers. And then next week we'll see what the Son asks the Father to do. And then in our final week in this study, we'll see how Christ's followers relate to the world, what we've been called to do as uh, citizens of this globe. Uh, And so before we jump into the text, let me give you a little bit of background, remind you what's going on around John chapter 17. Uh, Chapters 14 through 16 are a a section of scripture that we call uh, the farewell discourse. Jesus is very well aware that his time on earth is coming to an end, that the cross is very soon, going to be going to be coming very soon. And so he gives his disciples their last marching orders, this final teaching where he gives them commands to carry out. And then chapter 17, just as, as quickly as that farewell discourse ends, we have this prayer from Jesus. And this is a unique um, part of, of John's gospel. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's unique to John. And it's by far the longest prayer that we have from Jesus. Jesus prays other times. We see Jesus' prayers recorded for us. And then there are other times where we know Jesus prayed that we don't know exactly what he said. This is of the recorded prayers. This is by far the longest. And it's sandwiched between that final teaching and his trial and execution. A crucial time, right, where Jesus will begin to pray. And as he's praying, he's pouring his heart out before the Father. And and even as he begins the prayer in verse 1, he says, the hour has come, right? He acknowledges, he knows the the time is coming. His, His trial and execution are just around the corner. And this is the moment, this is the time, the hour that Jesus says for which he's been preparing for. But more than that, it's the hour that all of creation has been longing for, when, when everything would be made right, when we could have relationship again with the Father because the Son has died on our behalf. And this is the moment we've all been waiting for, the climax of all of human history, where life will triumph over death. death. And so in this prayer, Jesus stops, and he's taking inventory of his earthly ministry, thinking through everything that he's done on the earth as he's walked and done ministry and miracles and, and he's, as he's taught. He gives one final account to the Father in this prayer, and then he prays for his current disciples and his future ones, those of us that are sitting here in this room. We're included in this prayer that Jesus offers to the Father. The Protestant reformer Philip Melanchthon said this. He said, there is no voice 
No voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in the earth, more exalted, more holy, more faithful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son of God himself right here in this chapter. What a thought that we get to spend. We have the joy of spending four weeks studying this prayer uh, today and then the next two weeks. And if you think that's too much time spent on it, John Knox, the Scottish reformer, uh, had these 26 verses read to him every single day as he fought his final illness that would eventually lead to his death. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, if you know that name from British history, uh, his chaplain in the, uh, the military there, Thomas Manton, preached 45 sermons from John chapter 17. We only get four. This is week number two. So uh, as, as, uh, as, as our brother Jay comes, you listen to the word of God. You hear this prayer from Jesus. We're going to take it as one prayer because that's what it is. He's going to read the entire thing to us. And so y'all listen as Jay comes and reads our text for us. John chapter 17. Follow along with me if you will, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, and these that you have and know, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. I have four observations for us this morning from the text. Just remind you, we're looking at what the Son has given to his followers uh, from Jesus' words here. The first is this, the Son has given eternal life to his followers. I'll point you back to verse 2. Read verse 1 for context. It says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, there are two exchanges that take place in verse 2. Last week, we looked at what the Father gives the Son, and so we focused our attention on the first exchange. The first exchange is that the Father gives the Son authority. Two things there, authority over flesh, all flesh, and authority to give eternal life. That's the first exchange. The Father gives the Son authority. Then this week, I told you we're looking at what the Son gives to his followers, and it's the second half or the second exchange that takes place in that verse. And it's really the opposite side of the same coin. The Son gives eternal life to his followers. Now, this would be a shame, right, if you think about this. It would be a shame if the Father gave the Son authority to give eternal life, and the Son did not actually give eternal life. He hoarded it. He kept it. He was stingy. He was close-fisted with that uh, eternal life. You ever watched uh, a bunch of kids playing Duck, Duck, Goose? You know the game I'm talking about? Everybody's seen the game of Duck, Duck, Goose, where you sit on the floor in a circle, and there's one kid that goes around the circle saying, duck, 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 and then they get to that one particular kid, and they say, goose, and then that person chases them around the circle until they get back to the vacant seat, and if they sit there first, they're it, right? And that's how the game works. It's a blast. And I think, I think most cultures have a version of this game. Even in, in like Mexico, when we played it with Hispanic kids there, it was pato, pato, gallo, right? But it's the same game. It's how popular it is. It's a worldwide phenomenon. You ever seen a kid, though, that, that, that's being really stingy? Like, like they really, really, really wanted to be the goose, and then it's finally their turn, and they have all the power of the goose, and so they go around the circle, and they don't want to give it up? Right? And they're just like, duck, duck, duck. And they're like, lap number four, it's still duck, duck, duck. And you're like, would you just pick a goose? Like, <laughs> you like feel the anger boiling up inside of you, and you're just like, pick a goose, right? What's going on with the game? That's not the picture of Jesus that we have in the scriptures, right? Like, you see, the Father has given the Son authority in salvation to give to his people, and he gives it. He doesn't hoard it, he doesn't hold it, he doesn't hold it with closed fists. He, Jesus has authority and does actually give 
eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. Verse 2. I want us to take though a dive a bit deeper into what is being said here. When Jesus says that he gives eternal life, I think the logical question for us is, well, what does that mean? Like, if Jesus can and does give eternal life, what does that mean? What is eternal life, right? And how does he give it? Well, thankfully, we have verse 3, and it answers that question for us. Continue reading with me in verse 3. Jesus says in his prayer, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's sort of a curveball for us, right? Like, at least, at least our, our, our initial thoughts, when somebody asks you, well, hey, what's eternal life? Our, our, our thoughts usually, I'm confessing here, most of us think heaven, right? Where, we, where we'll never die, eternal, ongoing, never-ending life, right? In heaven, where we'll experience his glory forever. That's true. But what does Jesus say that it is? Right? When Jesus talks about it, what is eternal life? He says, this is eternal life, that we know the true God and Jesus Christ. So what in the world does that mean? What does it, what does it mean that if Jesus is equating eternal life with knowing God, knowing Christ, what does it mean to know Christ? I want to give you three things real quick. They're in our outline. You can, you can take notes if you like. Um, but here are three things, at least three things, that it means when we talk about knowing Christ, which Christ is saying is eternal life. First is this. Knowing Christ means knowing about Christ. <laughs> uh, and th- this is especially true in our world today. Even in the Bible Belt, where most people would know something about Jesus, they've heard the name, they've heard the, the gospel story perhaps. We can't take for granted, though, even here, that people know about Jesus. Listen, I want to make this as, as clear as possible and state this as clear as I can. You cannot be born again. You cannot have eternal life. You cannot have knowledge, or you cannot have eternal life, never-ending life with Jesus if you don't know the story, if you don't know the gospel, the facts, the data about a man from Nazareth named Jesus who's fully God died a criminal's death for the sins of the world, and rose again in three days. You can't be born again if you don't know that truth. It's impossible. can't happen. You have to know something about Christ. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. Hosea says that even in the Old Testament in his day, that his people were being destroyed for a lack of knowledge. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says the same thing, that his own people were being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Meaning they had no understanding, they had no knowledge. So we'll see in a second, when we get to number two, that it has to be more than simple knowledge, but it certainly can't be less. You have to know the story. You have to know the gospel, uh, the the truth about a man from Nazareth named Jesus Christ. It's that simple truth. It's that simple truth of who Jesus is that allows us to be able to experience eternal life. It's that simple truth that we must share, unadulterated gospel truth that we must share if others are going to know and experience eternal life. So you must know something about Christ. Second, though, knowing Christ means that Christ intimately knows you. Now, you may be thinking, Matt, I see what you're doing here. You're kind of setting us up. You're kind of setting us up for a, you know, a jab here because I know That Jesus knows all things. He's omniscient. He has all knowledge. So, of course, Jesus knows everyone. That's not the kind of knowledge I'm talking about. That's not the kind of knowing that I'm talking about. You see, in the Old Testament, 
The Old Testament regularly uses the word know, K-N-O-W, for intimacy language, for sexual language. Now, we miss this in our culture. Reading this text, even, you may miss this because we don't think like that. We don't use that sort of language, at least in everyday conversations, usually. But that's not the case everywhere. Jessica, my wife, um, she went to Uganda the last time that Papua Spring took a trip to Uganda. And uh, Jessica discovered, to her own embarrassment, that in other parts of the world, they actually still use this language of knowing someone and sexual intimacy and uh, she found that out rather quickly. You see, Jessica, who never meets a stranger, by the way, and, 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 and I would love to pause, since I'm ragging on Jessica right now, pause and say that this gift from the Lord, that she never meets a stranger, that she's a social butterfly, is an incredible blessing to me as her husband. Makes me so proud to be her husband because the, the personality that the Lord has given her and blessed her with is a gift. But as always, because she's a social butterfly, she's getting to know these sisters in Christ in Lamino Town, and making small talk, floating around the room, talking to every, every one of these ladies, and, um, and she meets Rabina. Now, if you've been to Uganda with our church, you know Rabina. She's a leader in the church. She's a leader in the school there for the orphans, a wonderful lady, um, godly lady. And she, Jess is making small talk to Rabina and, and, and just randomly says, so did you know your husband before you were married? Now, pause right there. Jessica, in her American way of thinking, is simply trying to ask her or see if this is like an arranged marriage sort of thing like you hear about on TV. Like, did you know, did you have any, did you ever met your husband before you were married? Maybe were you grade school friends or was it sort of an arranged marriage and you had no idea who he was? But in Rabina's African way of thinking, Jessica had just asked her a very personal question for someone that she had only met minutes before. <laughs> she thought... Rabina thought that Jessica was asking her if she had remained sexually pure before marriage, if she had known her husband before marriage. Rabina quickly explained that she had not slept with her husband before marriage, and Jessica blushed for the next three hours. Um, the idea is that biblically, to know Christ is to have intimacy with him because he knows you intimately. Uh, now, with any intimacy, human or otherwise, there's a mutual experience and exchange that takes place. In other words, what I'm talking about is that it's not simply knowledge about Christ, but having a personal relationship with him such that he knows you intimately, you know him intimately. There's a relationship there. And this is what we see every time someone is saved, someone is born, or born again. They move from having simple knowledge about Christ to having a relationship with him, a personal relationship where there's an exchange of intimacy such that they would risk their entire eternity on him. They would stake not just their, their physical life, their temporal life on this earth, but everything forever and ever and ever, eternity on this relationship with this one who died in my place. That's intimacy. They know Jesus, but more than that, they know that Jesus has known them. And here's the beauty of this picture in Scripture. Intimacy with Jesus is so incredible, so fulfilling, so satisfying, that the only physical way that the writers of Scripture could, could compare it, the only way that Jesus himself can talk about it here, illustration that holds a candle to it here, is to compare it to the intimacy that's experienced between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, when they enter into one another as one flesh in the, in the intimacy of marriage. That's, what, that's the type of analogy. That's the connection that's being made here. It's not that the biblical writers were perverted or couldn't get sex off of their brains. 
It's that nothing else on this planet can compare to the intimacy you experience with Christ when you are his and he is yours. That's, that's the comparison. So you have to know something about Christ. Christ has to know you intimately. Then there's a third thing. There's a third way that we're to think about this knowing Christ, which Christ has already said is eternal life in verse 3. It's that we understand it to be a growing knowledge. It's a growing knowledge. Verse 3 The tense of the verb that's used there means that it's an ongoing, increasing knowledge of Christ. There's an ongoing knowledge where where it's not just done and you have everything figured out that you need to know about the gospel in Christ, but it's an ongoing, developing relationship that comes with an ongoing, developing knowledge. In the great uh, stone wall, Nathaniel Hawthorne tells the story of a boy uh, who lived in a village by a mountain below a mountain, and, and on that mountain face, there was this image of this, this great stone face, and uh, you could see it from the village, this great stone face in the side of the mountain, and there was the legend that, that claimed that someday someone would come into the village that looked like that great stone face, and he would do wonderful things for the village, and this story so gripped this young boy that he would spend hours just gazing at this mountain, this cliff face, and this great stone face in the side of the mountain hoping and and thinking about the one who would eventually come. Well, years passed by, and the promised one never came. And the young boy became a young man. And uh, he kept thinking about the majestic beauty of this mountain and this great stone face in the mountain, and he would would dwell on it, hoping for the one that would come. And by and by, his youth passed, and he became a middle-aged man, and the man still never came. The promised one still never came. And finally, this young boy reached old age, And one day as he's walking through the village, a young kid points up at him and says, that's him. He's come. The the, the man, the, the, the promised one, the great stone face is here. You see, he had become the thing that he had contemplated. Over these years of looking at this great stone face, that is who he'd become. And the same is true for us. You become the one you behold. So are we gazing at Christ? And as we gaze at Christ, are we being transformed into his image? I mean, think about Moses, right? You become like the one you behold. Think about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and his face is radiating the glory of God. And then you have Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul is talking about that, that particular time where Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. And Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of, uh, from one degree to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Notice Paul says that we all, not just Moses and this one incident on Mount Sinai, but all of us, including the weakest, the poorest, the lowliest, the most sinful, if you've been born again, you are being transformed into the image of Christ. We will reflect God's glory. It's an ongoing, increasing knowledge of Christ which means growing in him, which means we look more like him. Well, all of that was number one. The son gives eternal life to his followers, which means we know him and we increase in knowing him. The second observation in the text is that the son has given the father's words to his followers. You see this in verse 8 and verse 14. We'll read them together. It says this in verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Let's get down to verse 14. It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. 
A few things to note here as we observe these, these two verses. Like the observation with eternal life that we just made in point number one, this is another case where the father gives the son something, and the son turns around and gives that thing to his followers. This time it's words. We noted last week, if you remember last week, the father gave the son words, and he said those words entirely, completely. He didn't leave anything out. The son says he gave the entirety of what God gave him to us. But the son gives those words to his followers, and so let's look a little bit closer and make some distinctions. The first is this. Is it word singular or words plural? Here's what I mean. Look back up at verse 6. Jesus says, I've manifested your name. To the people whom you gave me out of the world, they, uh, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That's singular. Then you get down to verse 8, and he says, For I have given them the words, plural, that you gave me. And then verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. It's singular again. So which is it? Is it one word, or is it multiple words? Why would Jesus be so intentional as to use both here to pray in the same prayer both ways? And why would John be so intentional as to record it with that sort of intentionality that both are presented here to us? Word and words. Well, to see what we, what we look at when we study the rest of John's gospel, what we see is that this isn't the only time that this happens, that both word and words are used. And when we study, a pattern emerges. And what we see in the Gospel of John is that when Jesus refers to words, plural, he's talking about the precepts, the commands, the, the teachings that he laid down for his followers. When he uses word, singular, he's talking about the message as a whole, equivalent to the gospel, who he is and why he came. That's why he would use word. And so you may ask, like, why does this matter? Why would we stop in the middle of a sermon to, to, to point this out and to elaborate on this? Well, when you think about the context... When this is being given, when Jesus is praying this and who's hearing it and recording it and marching orders that have just been given out in chapters 14 through 16, an incredible truth comes to light. The disciples, think about this, the followers of Jesus, in particular those that were among the, the close followers, the 12, the, the ones that were the close followers of Jesus, they've given themselves completely to the word singular, the truth of who Jesus is as Messiah. Though they didn't understand it fully, they were committed to it. They'd left everything to follow him. But they showed incredible immaturity when it came to the words, plural, right? The commands, the teachings, the precepts of Jesus. You think about even examples that we see in the New Testament with Peter, right? He chops Malchus's ear off, right? That's how he responds when they come for Jesus. And then he denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. I mean, this is the, the, the sort of thing that we see even in one of Jesus' closest. He's in the inner three. He's in the inner circle. And this is what we see from Jesus, or from Peter, he believed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Word, but following his words, his teaching, his principles, his precepts, it seemed like a long shot. I mean, they're just really struggling. But then what happens, think about context again, what happens after the resurrection, after Pentecost, when they're given the gift of the Holy Spirit to live inside of them? These very same guys who still fully believe the Word, who Jesus is, they're now empowered to obey the words, the commands, and they do. So much so that all of them that are left, all of them give their lives as martyrs for the spread of the gospel, the proclamation of who Jesus is, right? The very same guy, Peter, who denied Jesus before a young girl would eventually be crucified upside down because he wouldn't hush his mouth proclaiming Jesus is king. 
That's the transition we see. That's, that's what happens after the resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the comparison for us this morning is not their belief in the word. They knew who Jesus was and they believed it. The difference is their belief in obedience to the words because they'd seen a dead man raised and they'd been filled with his spirit. That's the difference. And so to flesh this out in application for us, think about how this hits us today. You, believer, have experienced that same resurrected Christ. You've seen a dead man alive. You, believer, have been filled with that same spirit. So... The response is, the application is, believe the word, the gospel, who he is, and obey the words, the commands, the teachings, the principles that he's given us. You've been empowered by his spirit to do so. He's been given these words from the Father. He gave them to us perfectly. Now believe them and obey. One more quick observation here about Jesus' gift of words before we move on. Last week we explored this idea of election, of God's sovereign election and choosing and salvation the authority that the Father gives the Son in salvation. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I'll just quickly remind you, verse 2. Uh, he, uh, the Father, gives eternal life. Or he, the Son, Jesus, gives eternal life to all the Father has given him, verse 2. If you go back to John chapter 6, verse 37, uh, Jesus says again, All the Father gives me will come to me. You say, well, Matt, that sounds a whole lot like predestination. Yep. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 actually uses that word that before the foundations of the world, that exchange, that gift happens. And, and for some of you, that, that may bother you. That may not sit well with you. You may be uncomfortable by that, and that's okay. I, I told you last week that, that, that this is a mystery in the scriptures that we're not going to resolve this side of heaven. And that two things are absolutely true, and we see them all over scripture. Two things, absolutely true. That, that, G, that the, the Father, that the Son are sovereign in salvation. Their initiative, he chooses. And at the same time, also equally true, man is responsible for responding to the gospel. We have to believe upon Christ or we will suffer the penalty, the right and just penalty for our sin. Both of those things are absolutely true. And here's the thing this week that we see in the text. Last week we saw one side of it, that we see the sovereign election of God, the gift, the authority that Jesus has to bestow salvation. And then this week, in the very same prayer, we see the opposite side of that coin. Look at the scripture we just read. Look at the verse we just read. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. Continue. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And there it is, this beautiful mystery that we have in Scripture, this beautiful mystery of salvation in one prayer from Jesus, that yes, he has elected for salvation all that the Father has given him, and they will come. And yes, also, they have to believe, and they have to receive his words. They're both there. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And so we don't have to be afraid when we hear election or predestination or God's choosing. And we don't have to squirm when we see man's responsibility and that man responds to the gospel and he must or he will suffer the consequences of his sin. They're both there. And we don't have to feel the tension to resolve them. Number three, third observation in our text this morning. The son has given the manifestation of the father's name to his followers. We see this in verse six. It says this in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Last week we saw the Father gave the Son a name. We saw it in verse 11 and 12. It actually repeats it, very similar language for emphasis. 
That the name that the Son has, it was given from the Father. And here we see that the Son gives, he manifests God's name to the people that the Father gave him. Now, manifest in this verse means to reveal, uh, to, to, to make known, to show. And the tense of the verb, the verb's tense, means that he did it. He accomplished it. It's not an ongoing knowledge like we saw earlier that's an increasing, growing knowledge. It's, it's an accomplished work. It's a done thing. He did it. He perfectly finished the job of revealing, manifesting the name of God to people. Now, before we move on and think that that's no big deal, maybe you wouldn't say that. Maybe we'd say that. that's not a big deal. But maybe we would glance over it, right? Maybe we would read this, this chapter of Scripture, this prayer from Jesus, and not feel the weight of that accomplished, finished work. That remind you of how the Jews treated in the Old Testament and to this day still treat the name of God the way they still treat his name. Uh, we have a friend in, 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 in Portugal that we met on a mission trip there, Jessica and I, and, and she still to this day sends birthday cards and, and greetings to us through Facebook or whatever, and, and she's a Jewish lady. And every time when she signs off on the end of the letter, it's capital G underscore capital D, bless. God bless. But she won't write it out. And she, she won't say it. The, the, the name of God, this idea started back in the Old Testament, that the name of God was so sacred for Jews that they refused to pronounce it. Instead, they took the consonants that we use for Yahweh, and they took the vowels from Adonai, which means Lord, and they put those together, and there you get Yahweh. But instead of saying it, they, they avoided speaking it because they didn't, they didn't want any chance of speaking it in vain. And then Jesus, in the New Testament, we meet the Christ and in the Gospels, we see that he manifests, he reveals God's name perfectly. More than that, he speaks it out loud. And more than that, even more shockingly, he claims it for himself, right? That's what Jesus does. When he shows up in the Gospels, he's claiming the name of God for himself. The supreme manifestation of the name of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. That's what we see in Christ. We see the name of God in flesh. And he so perfectly and completely revealed God's nature and character that he makes statements like, I'm going to give you some statements, where he says in John 12, verse 45, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. In case you're confused about who that is, John 14, he clarifies. John 14, verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. No mistaking. He's claiming to be God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says again that Jesus existed in the form of God. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. That's who we see in Christ. And that's why Jesus would make uh, statements and use the divine name, that the I am of the Old Testament. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the claim that Jesus makes. He's not only speaking the name of God, he's claiming the name of God for himself. That's who he is. He's the son of God. And this is where our doctrine meets doxology. This is where the theology that we believe produces worship and praise. This isn't just head stuff that we stick away in our brain. This produces praise in us that unlike the Jews who don't even speak the name of God, we've seen the name of God in Christ hanging on a cross in our place, and we worship him. We shout his name for all to hear because he's Messiah, God with us. He's the one who's died in our place. That's what Jesus did. He came to die so that we can know him, so that we can have intimacy with him. And this is the best news in all the world, in all of human history, and he's brought us near to himself. The fourth observation in our text. The Son has given glory 
to his followers. The son has given glory to his followers. We see it in verse 22. It says this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. There are two big questions looming in this verse that should come up when we read this verse. What is glory and what does it mean that Christ has given it to us? What is glory and what does it mean that Christ has given it to us? Well, glory here in the context of what Jesus has been praying Glory is Jesus' manifestation, making known, revealing, showing to us the character and blessing of God. Right? That's what he's just compared and made that, 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 that very clear to us in the way that he's prayed. Jesus grants eternal life to his people, and that consists of the whole life of God. Remember, that was where we started today, that eternal life... Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you would know God and the Son, Jesus Christ. That means, follow this train of thought with me, that if Jesus has given glory to us, which he just said in verse 22, as believers, he's given glory to us, and that means that he has brought to completion the task of revelation, revealing, manifesting the name of God. Oh, wait. (laughs) That's true. We already observed that that he's given the word to us from the Father to his followers. We, we, we saw that actually up in an earlier point. Well, that means that to get this sort of glory, to have been given this sort of glory from the Son, and we've been given that as followers, that means that he had to have revealed that glory at some point to his followers. He couldn't have kept it hit. Oh, wait, that's true too. We saw in verse 6. That's explicitly what he says. I've manifested your name to the, the people whom you've given me out of this world. So this glory that he's given us, this joy, life, peace, fullness, satisfaction, eternal life, which is knowing him, faith in Christ, he bestows and he grants. What's the result of this gift of glory? If that's what he's, if that's what he's communicating here, that he's done, he's given us glory, the manifestation of the name of the Father, the words that he's given us, then what's the result of this gift of glory? That we as followers hear and believe this word, that we as his followers have been given eternal life, knowledge of Christ, fullness of God and human flesh. What's the result of this eternal life that we've been given? Well, Jesus prays for that too. It's in the same verse, verse 22. We just read it. That they may be one even as we are one. I'm going to feel the weight of that for a second. That's what Jesus is praying. That the end at least one of the ends of this gift of glory that he's given you by dying on on the cross in your place is this unity that that we as his people, as his followers, may be one even as the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. I'll put this all together and go slow here. Because of Christ's work on the cross, think about the implications here because this is incredibly practical. This isn't just head stuff. You are loved by the Father in the same way as and with the same intensity and fervor with which the Father loves the Son. Like, let that rest on you. May, you may not have a Father who was worth anything. may have been a piece of trash and may have treated you horribly. But this is what you experience in Christ. When you are born again, this is what he says of the Father's love for you, that the Father's love is, is, is in the same way and with the same intensity and fervor that he loves the Son. That's, that's the kind of love that he has for you as his child. And let me remind you, that's an everlasting, eternal, never-ending kind of love. So what does that mean practically for us today? What does that mean for us to, to live out this text and to apply it and actually have marching orders from it? What does it mean that when Jesus comes to the end of verse 22 that he prays for unity? It means that we should dread 
we should dread that any grievance or, or preference or agenda that we have of our own, that's our own conviction or preference or agenda, would divide the family of God. We should dread the thought. It means that we should work to kill anything in us that would diminish our experience of this divine love and work that Christ has accomplished, this bond of unity that he's bestowed upon us as the body of Christ. Anything in me that would create disunity in that, I should work to kill. That's what he's praying for. In these final moments before he faces his trial and crucifixion, that's where he's thinking. Let me say it another way. When you insist on your own way, your preferences, your personal convictions, and it causes divisions in the body, disunity among God's people, then you're saying, even if you don't realize it, that this thing, this personal conviction, this preference that I have, this agenda that I'm trying to accomplish is more important to me than experiencing the glory of God that he has bought for me in the body of Christ on the tree that Christ gave his life to give us. God forbid I think God's given us a supernatural unity here at Poplar Spring. But let's not take that for granted. Especially at a time when we're not able to do discipleship and life together and even worship in the same room together like we were able to six months ago. Let's pray for that unity. God's created it. He just asks us to live in it and maintain it. And then let's also acknowledge that it's not the case for every church, even in our own county, and certainly not around the world. That there is not a supernatural unity being displayed in those bodies of Christ. And God forbid that we would let our own preferences get in the way of that because that's what Christ says. I've given them glory. <laughs> that kind of unity, that's what I've made possible for them. And your experience, your enjoyment of that glory, that unity that he's created, that blessing is not the only end. There's another one as well. Look at verse 21. He says this, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So there's that supernatural unity, God-given unity. Again, what's the purpose? Well, continue verse 21, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And you see it again in verse 23. Skip down to verse 23. It says, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So there's that unity again, that God-given unity. Why? Why, Jesus? So that the world may know that you sent me and, have, and loved them even as you've loved me. That sort of unity is what should characterize us as his body, should be our witness to this world, right? Like, think about this. Every Sunday I come into this room, or, well, we're starting to again, and look out across the people and I see scientists and, and, and accountants and teachers and students and construction workers and small business owners and farmers and stay-at-home moms and retirees and, and, and husbands and wives and children of all ages. And friends, there is no reason why you should sit in this room and listen to me. We, we didn't go to the same college. We don't pull for the same sports teams. We don't have the same hobbies. There's no reason we fit together unless... Unless the truth that I'm preaching about Jesus, the glory that we've experienced in the gospel is true and has captivated us. That's it. There's no reason it makes sense except for that truth. Our bond, church family, is far greater than any bond shared by people in a common stadium or arena or, or country club. Why? Because we all acknowledge together, we as the body of Christ acknowledge together, we are sinners deserving of God's punishment, but instead we have received God's grace as we believed upon Christ. And we share in something more powerful than a common experience or a shared interest. We share in the Son of God. 
We don't compromise truth to be unified. We declare truth and are supernaturally unified. And this is, Jesus says, this. He says in verse 21 and 23, this is a witness to the watching world. Don't you think for a moment, just getting real practical, don't you think that in the world that we're living in, the times that we're living in, with all of the darkness and, and, and hurting and brokenness and arguing and blaming and finger pointing, and, and everywhere you turn, it, it's happening right now. Don't you think that in this context, our context, in the United States right now, that if we as the church would embody and, and have this sort of unity, not diminishing our differences, but saying despite our differences, we're going to be together. We're going to be loving. We're going to care for one another. We're going to be unified as the body of Christ. Don't you think that would be attractive to a watching world that sees it nowhere else? That they see the people of God and they see black and white people, folks that are of different creeds, different economic statuses, different social statuses, coming together in, in, in one room proclaiming one truth. We're going to find that in the world. You're going to find that among secular thinkers. Don't you think that would be attractive? That's what Jesus is getting at in verses 21 and 23, that they would see, that the world may know. Because of that kind of unity, they would know who I am. Listen, Christian unity is vital because the world's pursuit of unity is futile. It won't happen. And so when, when genuine unity is authentically demonstrated, it's irresistible. You've seen it. You've been attracted to it and drawn to it. Real unity between Christians is a supernatural work that points to a supernatural explanation. How could that dude and that dude ever be friends? Because <laughs> Christ has made them brothers. That's why. On the opposite hand, think about this. On the opposite hand, division, division in the body of Christ breeds atheism in the world. How many people... If, you, if you've not heard this, then you're not talking to too many lost people, have said, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian, I don't have anything to do with the church because I've seen how they act. I've seen the hypocrisy. I've seen the way they treat each other. I've seen the dirty politics even in the church. God forbid that if they claim Christ and that's what it looks like, I don't want anything to do with either. Church family, the reality is the closer we draw to God, the closer we'll draw to his people. And the flip side of that is true as well. The further we separate and divide from the people of God, the further we'll find ourselves from God himself. It's impossible to walk faithfully with God and not be in communion with his people. Now, I understand there's exceptions in missionary contexts and things like that, but you ask those folks, and they long for it. That's why they're there in the first place, is to create, by God's power and grace, a community of God in that place where there is none. We need the people of God. And Christ says, here, it's our greatest witness. It is the evangelism plan. It is the strategy like, yes, share the gospel, but then live it out in a way that people see it and they know. That's what he said in verse 21 and 23. So church family, let's go from this place and be people that are drawn to Christ and people that live out the gospel in a way that we're drawn to his body. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, as we leave this place, uh, God, I pray that we would go with those marching orders. That even in your prayer in John 17, as you're approaching your, your crucifixion, Jesus, you're praying for our unity. You're praying for our togetherness such that it would be a witness to the watching world. God forbid that we get caught up in things in this world that would distract or take focus off of the, the supernatural, God-given unity that you've created in Christ. And God forbid that we would let secondary or tertiary matters divide us as the people of God. So God, help us to go in the name that we've been given. Help us to go with the words that we've been given. And help us to go cherishing the eternal life that you've provided for us 
in your death on the cross. Help us to know you daily, to spend time with you, and the intimacy that we share with you to grow daily because of your grace. And God, if there's one person here that's never trusted you, they've never experienced what it means to be free in Christ, they've never experienced the, the grace and in and, and being born again, being a son or a daughter of King Jesus, God, would you, God, would you draw them to yourself today? Would you open blind eyes, give sight to the blind, and, 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 and give life to a dead heart? We give you ourselves. Keep us, Father, until we're able to be together again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.